And please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Against That's Matthew chapter 21. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 21, 12 to 17. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've watched Jesus make His way up the road to, from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, where He will eventually be crucified. As we've seen, this has been an incredibly pivotal time in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Throughout most of His ministry, Jesus has resisted a full and public disclosure of His Messianic identity. He'd point to it through His teaching, signs, and wonders. He'd even allow John the Baptist to testify about it. He'd even hint at it by calling Himself the Son of Man. But He wouldn't come out right out and say it. He'd leave enough out there for those who had ears, men like the disciples, for them to hear and understand. But he wouldn't just come out and say it. He more or less left people to come to their own conclusions. And this is because he knew that once his true identity was revealed, his mission would be misunderstood and he'd be put to death. The people were expecting a purely political Messiah, one who would bring immediate judgment, not a savior. Jesus knew that that kind of misguided expectation would lead to his own execution. And so he held back. He wanted to make sure that there would be someone left to continue his mission until after he was gone. He wanted to establish a group of witnesses to proclaim his message after his death. And so he held back until after that had happened. That foundation was officially cemented back in Matthew 16. And ever since that moment, Jesus has been making His way up to Jerusalem so that He could offer Himself up as a sacrifice for sins. Then, outside Jericho, as Jesus made His way up to Jerusalem, Jesus publicly revealed His divinic identity for the very first time. Jesus is beginning the final leg of His trek up to Jerusalem among the thousands upon thousands of pilgrims going up from Galilee for Passover. A crowd of onlookers has apparently formed around Him And as Jesus begins this journey, He comes across these two blind men just outside the city who are crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. According to the Old Testament, the healing of the blind was a specifically Messianic miracle. That's why the blind men cry out, Son of David. It was the Son of David who would heal the blind. At this point, the crowds don't think that Jesus is anything more than a prophet, so they try to silence the men. But Jesus walks over to the men, and in the sight of all these pilgrims, heals them thus disclosing publicly, openly, his full identity. And pandemonium ensues. By the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem and begins to enter the city, he's greeted by this mass of people who are throwing down coats and palm branches on the road before him as they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is thus welcomed into Jerusalem as the Messianic King. And this, of course, means that he is about to die. Jesus held back from fully disclosing his Davidic identity because it was not yet time for him to die. It is now fully and openly disclosed to the healing of the blind men. This should mean that Jesus will be killed at any moment now, and he will. He was welcomed into Jerusalem on Sunday of the last week of his life. In today's passage, finally... For the first time in this gospel, we will see Jesus enter into Jerusalem. The Davidic king enters into Zion. He comes home to his royal city. 
And what's the first thing on his agenda? That's the question we should be asking at this point. What will this king do now that he's entered his royal city? Matthew tells us in Matthew 21, 12-17. Let's read the passage together. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. In leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. There's really no way to overestimate the importance of the temple in Israel's religious life. I would suppose that if I were to ask most people what comes to their minds when they think about Old Testament Judaism, the first thing that they probably think of is law, commands, prescriptions. They think all the regulations that are given in the Old Testament. And if you were to ask them what they thought the essence of Old Testament Judaism is, what is the very heart of that system of religion, they would say something to the effect of a strict adherence to commands. That's Old Testament Judaism. It's about moral purity. It's about holiness. But that's not really the heart of the Old Testament system. Don't get me wrong. Holiness does obviously play a significant role in the Old Testament system, but it's not the heart. It's addressed to the heart of the system, but it's not the heart itself. It's not what the Old Testament system is about. The heart of the Jewish system was, in actuality, the temple. The Old Testament is primarily about relationship. This is often misunderstood. Just like a lot of people think that God changes from one testament to the next, that He's a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace and love in the New, so also do many think that the Old Testament is primarily about rules, whereas the New Testament is about relationship. God issues commands in the Old Testament. He tells us how to obey, but Jesus is not concerned with that, people think. He tells us how we can have a relationship with God. And this isn't true, this kind of division. The Old Testament was just as much about relationship as the New. The reason why God issues command upon command to Israel, the reason why He issues laws about cleanness and uncleanness, the reason why He commands sacrifices even, it's all about relationship. And in the Old Testament, that relationship is expressed primarily via the temple. This is hard for us to understand as New Testament believers. It's hard for us to get our minds around this because there's no central place of worship for us today. Jesus predicted this in John 4 with the woman at the well. You'll recall one of the things that this woman was concerned about was where people should go to worship. The Samaritans believed that the central place of worship for Israel was at Mount Gerizim, near where this woman was gathering water. And so she asks Jesus his opinion, saying, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus answered, 
And he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This Jesus apparently said with reference to the Holy Spirit. When Christ ratified the new covenant on the cross, He made it possible for the Holy Spirit to be poured out into the hearts of believers where He now resides. This is how the New Testament believer worships today. We worship through the Spirit. We are the temple of God. God resides in us via the Holy Spirit. And that's why there's no central place of worship for the Christian. We don't have to travel anywhere to experience fellowship with God because He's always with us. So this is a very foreign idea for us to think of a centralized place of worship. But this is how it was for the Old Testament saint. For them, God resided in the temple. Contrary to how we're inclined to think today, the Old Testament believer was very much geographically oriented. Yes, they understood that God was omnipresent. They understood that He could not be located in any one specific place. In fact, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he even declared, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The Old Testament saint understood the omnipresence of God just as well as the New Testament saint. And yet, at the same time, they also understood that God was with them in a very unique way. This is what set Israel apart from every other nation on the earth. God was with them. On one hand, He was everywhere, and yet He was also present with them in a very unique way. He dwelt among the people. Israel was His land, and the Temple Mount was His home. As Moses explained when he first delivered the law, this truth came with incredible consequences for the nation. Chiefly, it meant that God's power would be manifest among Israel, either for their blessing or for their destruction, for their joy or for their sorrow. It all depended on the kind of relationship that the people had with God. If the people were in fellowship with God, if they approached Him in humility and worship, then God would delight to multiply their wealth and their offspring. He would make their name great in order to glorify His own name. And he would protect them. But if the people rejected that relationship by pursuing sin, then this holy God, this just God, this righteous God, would use that same power that he used to bless his people to discipline them instead until they should repent and enjoy the relationship that they had with him. The purpose of the law, or at least one of the purposes of the law, was to make sure that that power worked out for the nation's blessing and not its destruction. Everything about the law, from the code for holy conduct right down to the sacrifices and the many regulations surrounding that, it was all about Israel maintaining its fellowship with God. A holy God lived in their midst, a power greater than anything else in the, in the universe. The power who indeed created the universe dwelled among them. And the law taught the people how to interact with him under extreme caution. And if the people managed to do this, then Israel would be the most blessed of all the nations of the earth because God was with them, among them. It's as Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 4, 1-8, after 
briefly reviewing the whole history that they had with God in the wilderness, he says this, Deuteronomy 4, 1-8, he says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed them among, uh, destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sights of the peoples who when they hear of all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Can you see this is what made Israel different? This is what made them unique. They had a unique relationship with God. There was no other nation on the earth that had a God so near to it as the one that was near to Israel. He dwelt among them. The rules and the commands, they were there to help manage that relationship so that Israel might be blessed. This is why I say that the temple is really the heart of the Jewish system. Everything about the Old Testament commands, from the commands on holiness down to the sacrifices, were built around that structure. They were about maintaining that unique and intimate fellowship with God. That being said, there were two main components to the law. These two components worked in tandem to allow Israel to maintain this unique relationship with God. First, there was the demand for holy conduct. And then second, there was the provision of sacrifice to cover the people's sins. Again, these two components worked in tandem with one another, meaning they didn't operate separately. Both had to be maintained. The sacrifices made it possible for God to pardon the people's evil when they did sin. And yet He also expected the people to diligently obey His commands at the same time. In fact, under the law, there was no provision for intentional sin. So there was, permission, there was provision made for sin, but not one that wiped out Israel's responsibility to God. So God was gracious, He would pardon, but that pardon came under the provision that His people actually wanted to have a relationship with Him, as demonstrated by their faithfulness to keep His law. Israel had to uphold both of these components to the law for God to maintain His presence. It wasn't enough for them to merely offer up sacrifices. In fact, in Isaiah 1, 10-17, God even looks out on Israel's disobedience and He tells them to stop bringing Him sacrifices when it was so apparent by their actions, by their life, that their hearts were far, were far from Him. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. There God's saying, I'm not satisfied with your sacrifices when you're disobedient. Now right after this, God does tell the people that He will forgive them. That He will cover their sin. But He again, He conditions it on their repentance. Saying in verses 18 to 20, He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is what God desired. He desired obedience first. Indeed, in Hosea 6.6, 6, God even plainly says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is what God demanded from His people first and foremost. He demanded their holiness. That came first. But at the same time, that didn't mean that they could neglect the sacrifices either. The sacrifices were critical. The sacrifices were key. Because even after Israel's attempts to keep the law, they were still sinners at heart. Meaning that it was simply impossible for them to fully keep God's commands. And the sacrifices were what allowed Israel to possess fellowship with God anyways. Even after their failures. So the sacrifices mattered. They couldn't be neglected. In fact, they mattered so much that it would be fair to say that in many ways they served as the barometer of the people's heart towards God. Just like you can tell a lot about a church today by the effort that the people put into their worship, by their eagerness to offer up the very best that they have to offer in their lives to God, so also you could tell a lot about an Israelite by the kind of sacrifice that they were willing to bring to God. God even condemns the people of Israel in Malachi 1 for this reason, because they were willing to offer subpar sacrifices to God in their worship. He says, Malachi 1, 6-8, A son honors his father and the servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying, the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. God then continues to explain how he will not allow his name to be so dishonored with these subpar sacrifices in verses 11 to 14, saying, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, What a weariness, is, weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So you can see that God clearly cared about his sacrifices. 
the sacrifices reflected the heart of the people toward God. So it wasn't just one or the other, obedience or sacrifice. It was both. God desired both obedience and sacrifice. In fact, he told Israel that if they did not keep both of these aspects to his law, then he would remove his presence and with it his blessing from the land. And of course, that's exactly what happened in Israel's history. Israel failed to heed the call of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who told them to repent, who warned them what would happen if they did not repent. God judged the northern kingdom of Israel first, sending them off into exile uh, under the hand of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Then in 597 B.C., He judged the southern kingdom of Judah with the capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. And incidentally, Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 10 that before this happened, God's glory departed the temple. This once again demonstrates the significance of God's presence in Israel. It was God's presence that protected the people. So once that presence is removed, it isn't long before the land is conquered. By the time we get to today's passage, Jesus has been ministering in Israel for about three and a half years. And during that time, Jesus has continued in the line of prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, by calling on Israel to repent of their dead religious observance. He reminded them that God desired mercy and not sacrifice when he called Matthew Levi into ministry. And then he reminded them of that fact again during the Sabbath controversies. He preached messages like the Sermon on the Mount, telling the people that unless their righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. He rebuked the Pharisees for their manipulation of the law and then for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. His ministry has really just been a relentless call to repentance from mere external performance to sincere worship from the heart. Now as we've As we've seen, uh, this is a repentance that Israel could not provide on their own. Only Jesus can supply it. And he's demonstrated wonder after wonder that's pointed to this truth. The most recent of which was the healing of the blind men down at Jericho. So there's been this call to repentance, but it's obviously been a call to repentance that's pointed to Jesus. From the ministry of John the Baptist onward, it's been obvious Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who will provide Israel's obedience. Well, Jesus has preached this message for three and a half years now, beginning with his baptism by John onwards. Now, here in Matthew 21, he enters into Jerusalem for the very first time in this gospel. Now, he's been in Jerusalem before, but this is the first time that Matthew shows us Jesus entering the capital. So a Davidic king enters the city for the first time in several hundred years. And not just any Davidic king, but the Davidic king, the Christ, the deliverer of Israel. He comes home. And what does he do? He goes straight to the temple. Now in Matthew, it can look like the events in our passage occur immediately after the triumphal entry. Mark tells us that the events in this passage actually happened the day after the triumphal entry. Even still, Mark does say that Jesus entered the temple immediately after the triumphal entry. So the point is still the same. Jesus goes straight to the temple after entering Jerusalem to inspect the nation's worship. And this is to be expected. 
There's nothing surprising about this. Of course, Jesus is concerned with the nation's worship. It's been the chief concern of His ministry from the very beginning. Plus, He's the Son of David. That's how He enters into Jerusalem. He enters to the shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David. Well, if you've ever read through First and Second Kings, then you've seen that the kings of Israel were the ones who often directed the nation's worship. There were, there were wicked kings who would lead Israel to neglect the temple as they turned the nation to idolatry. And then there were good kings who would repair and reestablish the temple and call the nation back to the worship of Yahweh. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as a good Davidic king. And so, of course, the first place that he goes is to the temple. He wants to inspect the spiritual state of the nation. This seems to be the purpose of the Sunday evening visit mentioned in Mark. Mark doesn't directly say what Jesus was doing in the temple on Sunday night, what the purpose of that visit was. He just says that Jesus, quote, entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he then went out to Bethany with the twelve. So we don't know specifically why Jesus made this initial visit, but considering what happens the next day in our passage, it makes sense to see this as a royal inspection. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the Davidic king and his first act of business is to go to the temple and assess the condition of Israel's worship. And what did he find? He goes into the court of the Gentiles, which was this massive open space in the very outermost quarter of the temple grounds. And he sees money-changing tables set up. It was, re- it was required of every Jewish male to pay a two-drachma temple tax at Passover time. A drachma was the equivalent to about a day's wages. Every Jewish male was expected to pay this tax at Passover. But a traveler coming to Jerusalem from far away, they weren't allowed to make this, pay this tax simply using the coins of their homeland. Instead, he was required to, use, to, to pay this tax uh, using Tyrian coinage, a special type of coinage. So under Caiaphas's guidance, money-changing tables, franchises, were actually sold, and booths were set up inside the outermost section of the temple so that travelers could conveniently make this exchange in the temple and then immediately pay their tax. And of course, they'd be charged a fee for the convenience provided in this exchange, much like your out-of-state ATM fees today. Jesus also sees booths with animals for sale. Again, you would have many religious pilgrims traveling up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they would not only offer up a sacrifice for Passover at this time, but they would take this opportunity at the temple to offer up other sacrifices to God as well, perhaps for forgiveness of sin, perhaps in fulfillment of a vow they've made over the past year. But as you can imagine, it would be very difficult for these travelers to bring their sacrifice all those many miles up from their home to Jerusalem. And not only that, but the priests were very selective of the type of sacrifice that they offered. Uh, So animals had to be approved by the priests to be sacrificed. They're responding to that Malachi 1 passage, making sure that their sacrifices uh, met uh, God's standards. So booths were set up so that travelers could simply buy these priest-approved animals in the temple and then walk over and make their sacrifice. Now, this seems very convenient, right? But you know what this is like? This is like setting up a church in the front of a Walmart for all your one-stop shopping and worship needs. This is like setting up a McDonald's 
in the back of a church, in the church lobby, so you can grab a bite to eat on the way out after a long sermon. Don't get me wrong, there's some difference here. I mean, at least the animals being bought in the temple are being purchased for the purpose of sacrifice. So this exchange has something to do with the purpose of the temple. It has something to do with worship. But in the name of convenience for those visiting in the temple, and in the name of profit for those running the booths, the people have turned this temple which is supposed to be this place for people to come and retreat from the world in order to spend a few solemn moments in reflection over their sin, in confession, and in prayer. In the name of convenience and profit, the people have turned this place intended for solemn worship, this place designed so that an Israelite can go and spend time in fellowship with their God. They've turned it into a noisy marketplace and into a stinking, raucous zoo. Jesus sees this. He's disgusted. He's disgusted at everyone, by the way, both the buyers and the sellers. He chases them both out of the temple. Together they've made a complete mockery of the temple. Together they've turned the act of sacrifice into a complete farce. And so Jesus is disgusted. In fact, he's more than disgusted. He's furious. He's enraged at what he's seeing. Understand who this is. This is the Son of God, yes. And he's also the son of David. Keep that in mind. David was just really the prototype of the Christ. He was, in terms of character or personality or role, what he was in that sense pointed ahead to the Davidic son who was to come. Well, David, you will recall, was incredibly zealous for the glory of God. David's the one who, seeing Goliath come out and taunt the armies of Israel every day, declared, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is the man who danced before the ark as it was brought into Jerusalem. This is the man who, after building his own house and comparing the splendor of that home with the tent that the ark resided in, declared to the prophet Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent and determined to build a permanent structure to house it in. This is the man who wrote many of the Psalms. David was, a, was deeply, deeply concerned with the worship and glory of God. Even more than this, this was a man who was deeply concerned with the tabernacle and with the fellowship that he enjoyed there with God. After conquering Jerusalem and making it his capital, he brought the ark into the city as well so that the tabernacle would be nearby. Again, he was the one who actually set it in his heart to build the temple. Now, God didn't let him build it. That would be left for his son Solomon to do. But David set it in his heart to build the temple, and he even accumulated the materials that Solomon would use to build it before his death. He then made statements like this in the Psalms. Psalm 27.4 One thing I asked of the Lord that, I, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Psalm 63.1-4 O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek for You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. 
David loved the tabernacle. He was passionate about the house of the Lord because he knew that that house bore the name of God, that God looked toward that house in regard for His holy name and that He could worship and enjoy fellowship with God there. So, of course, this latter David, the ultimate David, is going to be enraged once he sees what's transpiring here. He's going to be consumed with the same zeal that David had for the glory of the Lord. It's evident, by the way, that the people are coming into the temple, that this is not a genuine expression of worship. There is no effort here, no recognition of the sacred building that they're in. They just do their duty, and then they're done with it. They're not interested in what the temple is actually for or in what the sacrifices are actually for. That's evident by their willingness to sacrifice the purpose of the temple for the sake of convenience. The temple and the sacrifices were designed as a place of refuge, a place to come and escape from the common, from the profane, from that which has been marred by sin, and to instead lift one's thoughts to the Holy One and to seek refuge under His watchful eye. But rather than escaping the profane in the temple, the people have instead profaned the temple itself. So it's evident there's no worship here. If there were, then this whole scene would look very, very different. As it is, they're just going through the motions. And in this way, this whole scene is really just a microcosm of what Jesus has seen over the past three and a half years. It represents everything that Jesus has condemned in Israel over the course of His ministry. The superficial obedience of the nation is on display, full display through this farce. And what it demonstrates for Jesus is that nothing has changed. Yes, the people hailed Jesus as the Davidic King as He entered into His city. But they haven't responded to any of His teaching. In fact, in fact... Now, Matthew doesn't bring this point out, but John tells us that Jesus actually cleansed the temple at the beginning of His ministry as well. We won't turn there, but in John 2, Jesus does almost the exact same thing that He does here, only then it was at the beginning of His ministry, shortly after His baptism by John. That's actually where He drives the people out with the scourge of cords, John 2. Well, here Jesus is, three and a half years later, and it's all going on just as it was before. So nothing has changed. Jesus sees all of this, apparently on Sunday night, when He goes into the temple, and He's enraged. And so He he returns on Monday with a plan. He gets up, and on the way into town, He curses the fig tree. We'll talk about the significance of that next week. It's a symbolic action. We'll talk about the meaning of that symbol next week. But just keep in mind, when we get there, Jesus does that before cleansing the temple. He's already got that symbol in mind on the way in on Monday morning. So Jesus gets up, He curses the fig tree on the way into town. And then He gets in the temple, and He loses it. It's now four days before the Passover. Nisan 10. That's the day when all of Israel selected their lambs for the Passover. Jesus comes back into the temple on Monday and he sees this whole exchange being made and he unleashes, he upends the tables of the money changers and the seats of the men selling pigeons. I mean, he's mad with righteous anger. When the disciples witnessed the same display in John 2, John writes that the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume him. 
They understood this rage was emblematic of the holy zeal of the Messiah. So Jesus is creating this violent commotion in the temple. I mean, you think that the people disturbed the temple with their buying and their selling before. It's nothing compared to the kind of commotion that Jesus is creating now. And what does Jesus say to explain all this? He says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Do you know what this means? I think we're probably inclined to think that Jesus is rebuking the financial extortion that's taking place by the sellers uh, as they gouge the buyers with their unfair prices. That's actually not what's happening. Remember, he's rebuking both groups. Both the buyers and the sellers are being chased out. The issue has to do with the purpose of the temple. He's standing in the court of the Gentiles when this happens, which is this section of the temple in which God-fearing Gentiles were allowed to come and worship. And so he quotes Isaiah 56, 6-7, which says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and uh, to, uh, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and upholds My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Point is, the temple was designed as a place of worship, as a place for prayer. And Jesus says, but you make it a den of robbers. You know what a robber's den is, right? That's a stronghold where criminals retreat for safety. Jesus is saying that the people are merely using the temple as a refuge for their sin. They're going out and performing all kinds of wickedness, and then they're coming into the temple thinking that so long as they come and do their duty and make their sacrifice, they're fine, they're safe, they're secure. Listen, they're not fine. God is not going to tolerate this. Jesus is not going to tolerate this. God actually uses similar language, uh, or uses uh, this language in a similar context in Jeremiah 7, and he uses it while threatening to remove his protection from Israel. He begins saying in verses 3 to 4, this is Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 7, 2 to 4, says, Hear the word of the Lord, you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, don't take comfort in those who say you're secure because the Lord dwells there. He continues in verses 8 to 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers for your eyes? Listen, he confronts them for their double-mindedness, their willingness to go and sin and then seek refuge in God. And he says, you're turning my house into a robber's den, a criminal's refuge. Stop it. Then he warns Israel that if they do not repent, he'll remove his protective hand and send them off into judgment. The rest of verses 11 to 15 read like this. He says, Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that is in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. 
And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I give to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. He tells them to go and look at Shiloh where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and he says, mark that. If you do not turn... I'll do the same to you. I'll remove my protection from you. This is Jesus' point. He sees the people seeking refuge, not in sacrifices, or in the one to whom the sacrifices are made, but in their, their religious performance, seeking refuge in their works. And he's outraged at the hypocrisy of it all. That's a word that he's going to repeat over and over again to the Pharisees on Tuesday. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Jesus is outraged at the hypocrisy on display here. He's outraged at how this perverts the purpose and function of the temple and its sacrifices. And he's treating, he's threatening them over it. He's condemning them, telling them that if they do not repent, they will soon be judged. God is not going to protect them. The refuge that they think they have in God in this temple, they'll soon find out that it's a mirage. God's protective hand has been removed. In fact, if you consider the role that Jesus is operating in here as he says this, listen, he's declaring this as the Christ. Understand, this is just one day after he was hailed by the crowds as the son of David. Have you ever wondered why no one stopped Jesus as he was doing this? Cleansing the temple, this is why. Luke says that the religious leaders wanted to destroy Jesus at this point, but they couldn't do anything for all the people who were hanging on His words. That's why they don't lay a finger on Jesus right now. He's too powerful, too respected. The people believe that He's the Son of David. And for good reason. Because right after this, He starts healing the blind and the lame right there in the temple. He's performing Davidic miracles, signs of the coming kingdom right there in their midst. I mean, the display of authority is so obvious here that even the children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. It's obvious who's cleansing the temple. It's the Son of David. So get this. The Christ, the Deliverer of Israel, is telling them, you're making my father's house a robber's den. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I won't protect you. I won't deliver you. Just one day earlier, the people hailed Jesus as the son of David, thinking that he was about to conquer the nations. The first thing that Jesus does, though, is he goes into the temple, right to the heart of their hypocrisy, and declare, I refuse to deliver you so long as you reject my God. And by the way, I don't think he's proclaiming that in hopes that Israel will repent. He's proclaiming this because they have not. For three and a half years they've rejected him. Now the opportunity has passed. This is not warning. This is a pronouncement of judgment. And yet, and yet, there's still hope for Israel. Because you see, after all the sacrifices have been chased out, guess who's standing there in the midst of the temple? It's not just the son of David. It's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It's Israel's Passover lamb. You see, Nisan 10 is the day that all of Israel would select the lamb that they would eat during the Passover. And here Jesus stands in the midst of the temple as the lone sacrifice on Nisan 10. 
just four days before he would offer himself up as the Passover lamb. This is who this is. He's the Davidic king who's zealous for God's holiness, and yet he's also the lamb ready to die for the sins of the people. And this lamb, do you know what he's doing? He's healing the blind and the lame. You know, Levites were, who were blind or lame were disqualified from being serve, uh, serving as priests. And that disability was a sign of fallenness. So these men were not qualified to enter into the presence of the Lord to offer sacrifice. Well, here the Messiah stands before the, uh, God's uh, people healing uh, the blind and the deaf. Here he is standing before the blind and deaf messenger Israel, God's kingdom of priests, and he heals the lame and the blind. It's a sign that demonstrates Jesus' ability to heal Israel and cleanse them, to make them acceptable priests to God. Their worship was corrupt now, but Jesus could cleanse it. In a few days, he would offer himself up as a lamb, and in offering himself up, he could provide a covering for their sin. He would provide their sacrifice. All Israel had to do was repent. All they needed to do was to turn from their hard-hearted rejection of God, accept the Messiah by faith, and believe. Now, obviously, that's not happening here. Uh, The religious leaders obviously reject Jesus here. When the children start proclaiming Him, they ask Jesus to stop. And just note here, by the way, they're not going to take Jesus' life, right? Jesus is clearly in control here. If He dies this week, it's not because anyone took His life. It's because He laid it down. Anyways, the children start proclaiming Jesus and the leaders are too scared to take control of the situation, so they simply ask Jesus to tell the children to stop. I mean, the level of self-induced blindness on display in that kind of request is simply remarkable. Jesus' identity is so obvious at this point that even the children can see what this means, and yet the religious leaders are still trying to squelch that truth. They're still trying to stamp that fire out right to the bitter end. And so it's obvious how this is going to go. Jesus isn't backing down. He's not backing down because he intends to die, and the religious leaders still refuse to accept him. So the same thing is going to happen that happened back in Matthew 12. The eyes of the people, the leaders who are blind, they will mislead the people once again. The nation will reject the Christ, and he will die. We see that now on Monday. That's the only way that this can end. And yet there's still this glimmer of hope in the midst of it all. This isn't the end of the story. I mean, the meaning of this sign is obvious to those who can see it. One day, Jesus will remove the nation's blindness. And they will look on the one for whom they have pierced, believe and weep, sincerely weep over their sins. The worship that they were supposed to bring into this temple, it's coming. Jesus will accomplish it. It's only a matter of time. So the question is, What are you taking refuge in? Or rather, who are you taking refuge in? Understand, there's a sense in which this passage is a warning. The people of Israel were coming into the temple assuming so that as long as they came and did their sacrifice, God would protect them. They didn't think it mattered what kind of attitude they had about it. They just had to do it. And so long as they did it, they were fine. The problem is that when they came in this way, they weren't actually seeking refuge in God or His sacrifices. They were seeking refuge in their obedience, in their works. They sought refuge in the temple externally, in their actions, in their behavior, but not internally. Internally, they believed that God would save them because of what they they did. they, They did what they were told. But God is not satisfied with this. 
Listen, he's never been satisfied with this. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is to seek refuge in obedience? It's idolatry. It's not worship. It's idolatry and it's sin. It's unrepentance. For three and a half years, Jesus pleaded with Israel to repent of their sin and find refuge in Him. And for three and a half years, they rejected those pleas. Now it's too late. Judgment is coming. Israel refused to seek refuge in God. Now God is going to refuse to protect them. Judgment is coming. And listen, it's coming to His people. The Messiah came to His people, and they thought the judgment was going to be for outsiders, but that's not how it worked. The issue was that His people had become so content, so satisfied in their relationship with God, that they assumed it as a given. They didn't continue to seek refuge in God. Instead, they sought it in their obedience. And so now God is going to discipline them. That's what Jesus is going to lay out in the Olivet Discourse on Tuesday. God's going to remove His protective hand. The temple is going to come down again. Not that he's rejecting his people, but he's going to discipline them. He won't reject them, but he will discipline them. Listen, that's a warning to us. Look, it's very easy for someone to begin their Christian life by seeking refuge in Christ, only to have the focus very subtly shift away from Christ and onto their obedience. They say to themselves, I'm God's child. I have nothing to worry about. I mean, I go to church. I do my daily devotions. I listen to the right radio stations, hang out with the right friends. I stay away from the bad influences. Basically, they clean up their lives. And because there is, this is not, there is no externally obvious sin, they think that they've repented. This is part of the problem, by the way. They only think of righteousness in terms of what they don't do, not in terms of what they do. That's much easier to achieve. It's easier to achieve, to to avoid unrighteousness than it is to practice righteousness. And so because they don't do any obvious sins, they don't think that they fall short. They can't see it. They believe they've arrived. They're mature. And as they think they've arrived, they look less and less to Christ in need, And they become satisfied with their obedience. They actually stop growing in the ways that Jesus demands. Their love for Christ will often grow cold because they've forgotten what they've been forgiven of and it's the one who's been forgiven of much that loves much. So they stop growing in their love for Christ. They're, quote, moral. But there's no worship in their life, no joy in Christ. And because there's no joy in Christ, they're unable to sacrificially love others. It's a burden to do instead of a joy, so they love others little. Even their struggle with sin becomes harder and harder. They fall into temptation more and more. Again, because there's no joy or satisfaction in Christ. They've stopped looking to Him. They've stopped depending on Him. And so, obedience itself is a burden. It's it's trouble. And yet, the whole time, they tell themselves, God is satisfied with me. I have nothing to worry about. Listen, when that happens... God disciplines. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those He loves. Just like God did not reject Israel, but still disciplined them for their lack of repentance. The same can happen to you, even if you are in Christ. God's not going to reject you. If you believe in Christ, and Christ's sin, uh, Christ's, uh, not sin, Christ's blood covers you, covers your sin, you're accepted. God won't reject you but He will discipline you. 
When He sees you take your focus off Christ, He will remove His blessing. He will let you experience pain. And that's not to punish you. That's to discipline you. To correct you. If you're God's child and He loves you too much to let you be satisfied with anything less than Him. So if you turn away to idols, He will discipline you until you return. He will if He loves you. So don't assume that because you fixed your eyes on Christ once when you believed that you have nothing more to worry about. You can't just say, yeah, I placed my faith in Christ back then, so I'm good. You must continually seek refuge in Him. Faith isn't something that's only practiced once when we come to believe and then tossed away. It's something we work out daily as we strive to rest more and more in Christ as we live for His glory. So where do you stand? What do you seek refuge in? Today's an excellent day to ask yourself that question because in a moment we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Do you know what the Lord's table is? It's a reminder. It's a symbol that points backwards to what Christ has done for us to remind us first of the sacrifice that He accomplished for us and then second of the fellowship that we presently, presently enjoy with Him. This is our temple moment. This is when we get to reflect on the refuge we have in Christ. And yet I have to say it's very easy to turn this observance into a mere performance. It's easy to stop looking past the elements, back to Christ, and instead begin to find hope in the elements themselves. It's easy to begin saying, I have peace with God because I do this. Instead of saying, I have peace with God because of what this represents. Because of what Jesus has already done for me. So as we take these elements, make this an opportunity to pause, to reflect, to be reminded of what your refuge is in, and worship. Let's pray.